And as we've gone through chapters 8 and 9 and come to chapter 10, uh, we're coming to, I don't know what it, the heading is in your Bible, in my Bible, it's the one sacrifice of Christ is sufficient, or the once for all sacrifice of Christ. And as we read through this chapter, uh, we'll then take some time to look into it. Are we doing okay from a mic standpoint here? I know, is this not on? Says it's on. We're using this then? Just want to make sure. Okay, got a thumbs up back there. All right, let's read through chapter 10 together. Writer of Hebrews says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. As the writer of Hebrews continues, he begins to apply what he has spoken of up to this point in the book of Hebrews. But we're going to look at, Lord willing today, the first portion of this chapter and look at the once for all offering of Christ. The writer in chapters 8 through 10 is describing the features of the new covenant and contrasting them with the old He has highlighted the greater tabernacle of the new covenant, which is a heavenly one, as opposed to the shadow on earth. He's pointed to the greater sacrifice of the new covenant, which is the death by the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, and also the continuing priestly ministry of the new covenant as Christ appears in the heavens. And We certainly could find more things to review in the last couple chapters than that, but that's what he's doing in in this section. 
In chapter 10 here, the writer is demonstrating the effectiveness of Christ's sacrificial death by contrasting it with the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The mention in verse 3 of year by year seems to allude to that sacrifice that was made on the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, the one day out of the year when the high priest of Israel would make an offering for himself first, but then also for the nation, for the sins of the people. And that would have been something to see if Israel was obedient, to watch them. Andrew Bonar, as he writes in his commentary on Leviticus, describes the scene of what that would have looked like. He says, how intensely interesting to have seen this day kept in Jerusalem. The night before, you would have noticed the city become silent and still as the sun set. No lingerers in the market, no traders, no voice of business. The watchmen that go about the city sing the penitential psalms, reminding themselves of their own and the city's secret sins, seen through the darkness by an all-seeing God. And the Levites from the temple sing responsively as they walk around the courts. When the next morning the sun has risen over the Mount of Olives, none go forth to the streets. No smoke rises from any dwelling, no hum of busy noise, for no work is done on a holy convocation day. The melody of joy and health ascends from the tabernacles of the righteous, but at the, mount, but, but at the hour of the morning sacrifice, the city pours out its thousands who move solemnly toward the temple or repair to the heights of Zion's towers or the grassy slopes of Olivet that they may witness as well as join in all the day's devotion. They see the service proceed. They see the scapegoat led away. They see the priests come out of the holy place. And at this comforting sight, every head in the vast, vast multitude is bowed in solemn thankfulness. And every heart moves the lips to a burst of joy. The trumpet for the evening sacrifice sounds. Olivet re-echoes the people on its bosom, see the city and the altar, and weep for very gladness. All know it's the hour for the evening blessing. When the sun set, an angel might have said to his fellow, look upon Zion, the city of solemnities. Behold Jerusalem, a quiet habitation. And yes, what a interesting thing to see. What a beautiful thing to see. And yet that whole ritual performed on that day was a shadow. It was a picture. It was a sign that pointed to one who would lay down his life and truly appease God. Why do we know that it was a sign? Why do we know that it was a shadow? Well, Verse 3 says, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Year after year, that offering was made. If Israel was obedient, the high priest that year would go through that whole process. And then again, and then again, and then again, until eventually he retired and someone else would take his place. 
that's just a shadow and a picture. The songwriter said, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience rest or wash away one stain. And if we read through the first few verses here, this is what we're reminded of, is the inadequacy of animal sacrifices to cleanse sinners. Notice verse 1. We have the source of those commandments to offer sacrifices in the law. He says, for the law, since it only has a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Those who draw near are the worshipers. They're called worshipers in verse 2. And there is a reminder here in verse 1, as well as we've seen earlier in the book of Hebrews, that these things that the law commanded particularly with regard to sacrifices, were a shadow, the substance of which, what is casting that shadow, is the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. The law is commanding those sacrifices. They are to be done yearly. And the fact that they haven't ceased, the fact that they just continue, is a part, in part showing their inadequacy. They just kept on going year after year, but they didn't and they don't make perfect. They don't cleanse. They don't change those who draw near. That's what the writer says there at the beginning of this chapter. At the end of the verse, he says they can never do that. They can never make perfect those who draw near. If they did, his point in verse two is that they would stop that the priest would go in and offer the sacrifice, and that would be the end. Notice he says, otherwise they would have not cease to be offered because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. So if the sacrifices were truly effective, they would have ceased. The worshipers would have no more conscience about the sins that they committed. But year after year, Year after year, those sacrifices were offered, testifying to a sacrifice that was yet to come. And of course, that sacrifice is Christ. We understand from the gospel, from the book of Hebrews, that's why Andrew Bonar, that same one who wrote on Leviticus, wrote the hymn, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains, white in his blood most precious, till not a spot remains. So it is Jesus and his sacrifice that perfectly atone for sin. We've sang a couple times this morning already, full atonement. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from animal sacrifices. We're reminded here in verse 4, that's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. And you can look at all of those rituals through all of Israel's history and realize that even as they obeyed God, that what they were doing was impossible to take away their sins. Those sacrifices were inadequate. 
In fact, as we keep on reading in this chapter, we find that God is not pleased with them. He's not pleased with them at all. It's not as if somehow the offering of a sacrifice is even going to temporarily cover the sin of the offerer. It's just not going to happen. And let's look at that in verse 5. We're given an indication in verse 5 of the incarnation. It says, therefore, when he comes into the world, that's a recognition of the Christ, the one true sacrifice who comes into the world, the one who was specifically tasked with the offering of himself for sins. And we, of course, have other passages in our New Testament that draw attention to his coming into the world. We know how he came into the world. He became flesh. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when he comes into the world is a statement of the incarnation. And as he comes in, there's this statement that the writer of Hebrews draws from the psalm. Psalm 40, where he says, as he's coming into the world, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then he said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. What God did in really fulfillment of those sacrifices, in fulfillment of the promises, is he brought his son into the world and prepared for him a body that he would then offer to God as a sacrifice for sin. We find in Philippians chapter 2 another statement of the incarnation as the writer, of course, Paul is calling people to humility. So this act of Christ as he came into the world, verse 5, was an act of submission to the Father, of humility. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this humble servant, the Son of God, comes into the world, and as he comes, he's coming to lay down his life, and as he comes, there is a body prepared for him, the body of Jesus Christ, which would eventually be taken and bruised and battered and scourged and pierced, his brow pierced with the crown of thorns, that body was prepared by God so that Christ could come and lay down his life. Really, as a fulfillment of God's purpose, that all of these other sacrifices pointed to. See, God actually did appoint sacrifices to teach something, not only to foreshadow the coming of Christ, But in the very act of sacrifice, there were lessons to be learned. What are those lessons? One writer put it this way. He established these sacrifices as object lessons to instruct his people about the sinfulness of their hearts. 
his hatred of sin, the fact that sin leads to death, the need of atonement, and his delight in those whose hearts were clean and obedient and faithful. And so, yes, the killing of those animals as those worshipers would come, there were lessons to be learned. If you've ever watched an animal die, and it's a deliberate thing, it's a sobering thing. To know that the death of that animal had to do with you is also sobering. And of course, in the sacrifices, there was that purpose. That they would bring the animal after they had sinned and that animal was to die. Its blood was to be shed. Of course, there are lessons about the person of Christ as well as the choice of the animal had to be spotless. It had to be without any blemish. But what did God expect as the person brought that sacrifice? He wasn't expecting them just to sort of bring an animal and have the animal slaughtered, the blood shed, without any reference to their heart. No, there is on the part of the offer in the Old Testament, and of course in Christ here, there is commended a heart of obedience to God. In fact, notice that as you see the psalm quoted here, not only is there a body prepared, but in verse 7 it says, Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. So there's an expectation that as the offerer comes, he is submitted to God. In fact, in the Old Testament it would be that he has a broken and contrite heart. I want to ask you to turn back to Psalm 40 for a moment, where this quotation comes. David, the writer here, praising the Lord, thanking the Lord for deliverance in the early part of the psalm, declaring the good things that God has done for him as he trusted in the Lord. And then in verse 6 and down through verse 8, we have the quotation that we find back in Hebrews. And what does David say? Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written to me. I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. Now you might note as you read this translation, and you can even see in the margin in verse six there, where it says, my ears you have opened. Literally, my ears you have dug There's a variation between what it says here and what we find in Hebrews. In Hebrews, it's a body has been prepared, but here it's my ears you have opened or my ears you have dug. And the word that's used there is a word that's used for the digging of wells or graves. Jeremiah 26, excuse me, Genesis 26 
uh, Genesis 50, and then a pit that is dug in Jeremiah 18. So the idea is the digging of ears, almost like there's a, a creating of these ears by digging them. And that's one suggestion that that's what it has to do with. But the digging of the ear is preparing the person to be able to obey because they hear and then following the hearing they obey. There's one other suggestion that what David is talking about here, he's alluding to the practice in the Old Testament of when a servant was willing to stay with his master and he, in the process of wanting to stay with his master, had a mark on his ear. Back in Exodus 21, it talks about taking an awl or something to pierce his ears so that as to make that mark would signify that this is a servant who is willing for life to serve his master. And that mark in his ear is a testimony to it. Exodus 21 says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him permanently. So the suggestion is that if this is an allusion to that, it's talking about the full commitment, willing commitment of that servant to the master. David's just saying, that's what I'm like when it comes to serving God. One writer put it this way, thou hast not required ceremonial services, but obedience and has pierced my ear as a sign that I will hear thee and obey thee forever. And that certainly was, when we think about the sacrifice of Christ, a willing coming into the world, of course, knowing his full purpose to lay down his life. That's what Philippians is talking about. Of course, that's what Hebrews is elaborating on. And you might say, well, it does start with the ear, listening to hear the voice of the master, and then whatever the master says, obeying. The ear is part of the body. It is preparing the body to serve. So why do you have the translation and what the writer of Hebrews is quoting from is a Greek translation of that passage in Psalms. So why does the writer, why does the translation say body, whereas this says ear? Well, they certainly are linked. And the preparation of the ear would be a part of preparing the body. It's somewhat of an interpretive translation to say, a body you have prepared me. And we tend to focus on the body of Christ and all of the things that he went through. And rightly so. The gospel draws attention to those things that Christ did as he laid down his life, as his body suffered the harm that he went through in the process of crucifixion. But the, the thought of the ears, and then the tr interpretive translation, the body, we're talking about the preparation of this servant to serve. And it certainly involved his ears, but it also involved his heart as those words were heard, and then his body as he acted in living service to God. He obeyed God. In fact, he said, I always do those things that are pleasing to the Father, always. That's a wonderful thing. 
that our Lord willingly came. And it is in contrast in the passage here in verse 6 with these offerings. Again, we can go back to Hebrews 10 quoting this passage, but look at it here. Sacrifice and meal offering you've not desired. End of the verse, burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. So multiple kinds of offerings that God prescribed in the law that David is saying, this isn't what God wants. And obviously, ultimately, what God wants when a sacrifice is offered is not the animal. That's not the animal. He wants the worshiper to come and with a willing heart to believe the truth and to be contrite as he brings, for instance, that sin offering. For an offerer to just come and offer his offering without that heart was a mockery. It was suggesting that God somehow is happy with the shedding of the blood and the groaning of the animal and the death of the animal and then the smell of those sacrifices as if God was pleased and and, and atonement was made because this animal suffered. Well, that's really not what God was interested in. It was the picture of Christ. But notice as he continues, not only are his ears open, but verse 7, he says, Then he, then I said, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written me, uh, of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Another aspect of what is going on here with David The writer of Hebrews says that this is what Christ says when he comes into the world, but David is the one who wrote this. What was in David's mind or what is on David's heart as he talks about the sacrifices and then a willing heart? I think one writer helpfully pointed out that when David came into his authority as king, he had a predecessor who was willing to offer offerings and not obey God. Remember when Saul offered a very public offering? They're on the verge of a battle, and Samuel had said he's coming, and what does Saul do as he sees the people starting to scatter because this offering is a part of their devotion to God as they enter into battle, and he sees the people scattering, and he thinks he has to offer a sacrifice to get things going. And Samuel said, wait till I come. And Saul did it anyway. As Saul offered that offering and Samuel finally came, he rebuked him for offering the sacrifice instead of obeying the Lord. But he what because he wasn't supposed to offer the sacrifice. In first Samuel chapter 15, Samuel rebukes him. And as he rebukes him, he draws attention to this issue of God's delight in burnt offerings versus obedience. He says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So as David comes in to his reign and understands that's what cost Saul the kingdom in part on his heart is obedience to the Lord. He says, 
sacrifice and meal offering you've not desired, my ears you've opened. Burn offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written to me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. That's David's desire to obey. But there's more than that because David is talking about a scroll, verse 7, a scroll of a book where something is written about him. And what is written about David by extension, because Christ is the son of David, is also about Christ. Understand what I mean here. I'm not saying they're they're one and the same. I'm saying that David, as he came into possession of that earthly throne, he understood if the scroll of the book, especially the law, testified to who the Messiah was going to be, David would have understood that, for instance, because he's of the tribe of Judah, there was a fulfillment of scripture in his becoming king. Because Genesis 49 and Jacob's blessing of his sons, he said that Judah, from Judah, would spring the lawgiver, the king. And we could look at other passages in Genesis regarding the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham. And then eventually that promise which indicated that there would be a king coming from the line of Judah. And then in David's own lifetime, he was told by the Lord that his house would continue forever. He said, I want to build you a house, Lord. And the Lord said, I'm going to build you a house, not literally a brick and mortar house, but a dynasty that would end with, terminate with the Messiah, the king. But when David comes and he understands that he is, in a sense, a fulfillment by his becoming king in the scroll of the book, it was written of him, he's ready and willing to serve the Lord. Now, this is also applied to Jesus. Because, of course, what was written of David, up to David's lifetime, there was a revelation there to David regarding the Messiah. But as you go through scripture, of course, there's more and more about the significance of who Jesus was and his being the Messiah, his being the son of David. And then as he comes in the flesh, he has a purpose from God to obey God in his life. And it has to do with, of course, all the things we see in the Gospels, but ultimately laying down his life, as Philippians says, to the point of death, which is obedience to the point of shedding his blood upon the cross. Notice in verse 8, this is David's heart as he writes it, but it's applied to Christ. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now just think about David for a moment. That may have been true of David when he wrote it. That may have been, as he's writing that psalm, I believe it was his true heart's desire. But of course, we know David's life, didn't he didn't always delight in God's law. He disobeyed God's law in major ways. As he sinned with Bathsheba, as he killed Uriah, he turned back to Hebrews chapter 10. There really is... Just one person 
in history that you could say always had that attitude, always had that heart. And for that reason, his offering was perfect. Notice in verse seven, then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus, John 8, 29, always did the will of the father. Which one of you convinces me of sin? He asked the question. None of them could. He came to obey God. One person wrote it this way, said it this way, Jesus' joyous resolve to obediently do God's will is the essence of true sacrifice and worship that God desires. This is what God was looking for in the lives of his people as they would come to worship. This is what is taking place in the heart of the Messiah as he offers up his sacrifice to God, the sacrifice of himself. This writer goes on to say, Jesus did, does rather, what God desired from every worshiper in the old covenant. God did not want animal sacrifices. What he wanted and still wants is obedience. That's the only sacrifice that's acceptable to God. So in verses five through seven, we have this quotation that is applied to Jesus as he comes into the world. And it helps us to see that when he offers his sacrifice, that what God desired Jesus fulfilled that perfect willingness to do the Father's will. Look at verse 8. He says, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So what is he talking about in verses eight and nine, he's talking about the transition between these Old Testament sacrifices and the perfect sacrifice of Christ in the new covenant. It's the removal of the old and it's the establishing of the new, that one perfect sacrifice of Christ. Perfect, only offered once. This is the offering for sin. Why do these Hebrews need to hear it? Because they're living at a time when they're being persecuted for their faith. And there's a tendency to want to return to this old system. There's a tendency for them to want to avoid all that isolation and ostracism and put themselves back into that system of shadows and miss the substance, which is Christ. It's like someone used the illustration of getting married, and before he got married, he had a photo because he wasn't with his wife, and he was thinking about her, anticipating meeting her, and then marrying her. But then once he marries her, why would he ever go back to delighting in that photo when he has the person with him? and he can delight in her presence. Why would you go back to the shadow when you have the substance? I think that's a helpful illustration. Here, what God is communicating through the writer of Hebrews is that really there's a, the substance has come. 
Christ has come. He's laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin. He did so perfectly. He delighted to do God's will. We find in more than this place in Hebrews that there was a joy in Christ's life as he accomplished the Father's will. Remember, Hebrews, later in Hebrews chapter 12, it's for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. There was an anticipation of joy, of fellowship with the Father, fellowship with his people. There was, there was joy in our Savior's service as he served his Father. And what does that sacrifice do? Well, those sacrifices before, they could never make someone perfect. They could never cleanse the conscience. But in chapter 10 here, verse 10, it says, By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that's once for all time. That's the point that he's making here, that it's a one-time offering that as he makes it, it's effective. It does not need to be repeated like all those Old Testament shadows. What has this sacrifice done for us? He says in verse 10, we have been sanctified. That means we have been set apart. And that's a reference to what is called positional sanctification. When you look at scripture, you can see that sanctification is sometimes spoken of as having happened. At other times, it's spoken of as happening now. When we think of progressive sanctification, it's the work that God is doing now in the hearts of his people as he's changing them and making them more like Christ. But there also is this teaching of Scripture that God sanctifies his people as he lays down his life, as Christ lays down his life and purchases them. He sanctifies them. He sets them apart. And of course, as they come to him, they're changed. They're changed in their status, and they begin to be changed in their practice. But there's such an emphasis on, on this in Scripture that he actually says of us, this is an amazing thing. You're saints. You're set apart ones. You're holy ones. You ever see that as you read through the New Testament? You see God's people being called saints. In other words, this isn't something that you have to wait for. This is something that's already true of those who are in Christ, who believed in Christ. God has set them apart. He has saved them. He has sanctified them. They are holy ones. And you might say, well, I don't feel much like a holy one. And I still sin. And yes, that is true. We do still sin as believers, but we are called to be saints. We are called to live that out. And that's why in the very same passage where he talks about sanctification and setting apart his people by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, he also speaks of that other kind of sanctification. Look down to verse 14. He says, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are, you might see in the margin, being sanctified. So he describes us both ways, both as the sanctified, those who are sanctified, and also those who are being sanctified. And both are true. And how did that happen? And how does that happen? Well, we were sanctified by 
the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and we're being sanctified as God works in us by the Holy Spirit. So this is what we are positionally. We've been sanctified by God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, but practically that means we need to live it out. And could I ask you today, are you living that out in your life? You're called a saint. Are you living like it? You're called a holy one. Are you being holy in all manner of conversation or are you striving for that with the help of God? Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who's at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure? In other words, God is definitely involved in our sanctification, not only our positional, but now as he works by his spirit in our hearts, we are to pursue and work out that salvation that he has begun. And of course, he is working it out as well. This is a wonderful teaching that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And we can rest in that and trust in that. Now quickly, as we look at the end of this section, he draws attention again in verses 11 and 12 to this contrast between the earthly priesthood and Christ's priesthood. What are the earthly priests doing? And this is one indication that at least at the time of writing, it seems that the priests were still operating in the temple. It says every priest stands daily ministering, stands. This is what they're doing. They're standing, ministering, and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. There's the shadow. They're testifying by their shadow that there's a substance of someone who come who would come and offer sacrifice for sins. And of course, that shadow continued. Even after Christ came, there was a shadow there. But that shadow was not the reality, and that's why, end of the verse, they can never take away sins. The sacrifices, bloody sacrifices would never take away sins. But verse 12, he, and here's where we see the, the efficacy of the offering of Christ, he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. What were the other priests doing? They were standing. What does he do when he offers his one sacrifice? He sits down. There's no seat in the tabernacle. There's no seat in the temple except for the mercy seat. And so he sits down, and as he sits down, his work is completed. This is a testimony to the finished work of Christ, that he has done what is necessary to accomplish atonement, full atonement for sins. And notice, as you see the capital letters there, if your translation has capital letters, that sat down at the right hand of God, where does God sit? He sits on the throne. So this high priest, as he offers his sacrifice, is not only priest, he's also king. And that indicates, of course, that there's more to this person than just this, this practice of offering sacrifice. The same one who offers sacrifice is also a ruler. He's also a king. And indeed, not just any king. He actually sits on God's throne with God. So he is God. 
And what is he waiting for? Verse 13, he waits from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. He's quoting here from Psalm 110. That psalm which testifies to the priesthood of Christ as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but also as his reign upon the throne. The Lord said to my Lord, David says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is a priest king. This is the one who laid down his life. This is the one who then sat down. As he sat down, he sat on a throne. And his sacrifice is effective. He repeats again, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected. Remember what they were looking for in verse 1? Those animal sacrifices, they could never make perfect those who draw near. But his one offering, verse 14, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's us if we believed. He's perfected us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're perfect in terms of our, our, our actions. It means that in our standing before God, we are complete in Christ. When God looks upon us, he looks upon us with the righteousness of Christ. Our sins have been paid for in Christ. That sacrifice was effective. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. And... By the way, what a truth to rejoice in. If you know the Lord today and you can trust in that sacrifice for you, it says he is perfected for all time. You could certainly say for eternity. Complete. You are complete in him, Paul says in Colossians. There's nothing you can add. There's nothing I can add to the sacrifice of Christ. I can't add works to it. I can't add baptism to it. I can't add church going to it. I don't add to what God has already done for me in Christ. By the way, you might get yourself into it from time to time thinking that your contrition somehow makes up for your sins. That how sad you are sort of pays for the sins that you do. That you sin against God and you think that somehow your sadness or the depth of your sadness somehow atones for your sin. Listen, you can't atone for your sin by your own sadness, by your own sorrow. You should be sorry if you sin. But what atones for my sin is the sacrifice of Christ. It was his blood shed for me. So when I come to God, I can... Yes, I ought to be sorry for my sin, but I'm not trusting in my sorrow. I'm trusting in Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for me. And praise the Lord that we have such a Savior who has given himself for us and has perfected us, completed us, so that we stand before God without any defect, without any deficiency. In God's eyes, through Christ, we've been declared righteous, we've been completed, we've been perfected, we've been sanctified. Quickly, verse 15, down through verse 18, he's drawing attention again to the new covenant. He says, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. Again, he's quoting from Jeremiah. And then he says, and here's the critical point, he's drawing attention to the new covenant, but then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, 
I will remember no more. Now, year after year, year after year, as those sacrifices were made in the Old Testament, there was a remembrance. There was a remembrance for sin. But when Christ came and offered his new covenant sacrifice for sins, and there was no longer any more that needed to be done, he had, he had satisfied the demands of the law. He'd offered the perfect sacrifice with a willing, joyful heart. I delight to do your will, oh my God, your law is within my heart. And he offers the sacrifice, and the debt is paid, and atonement is full. There's forgiveness. Complete and total forgiveness of sins. And the writer says, now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. If God forgave, the conscience is cleansed. There's no more offering to be given. So when I go to God, I am really continually looking back to that offering of Christ as what satisfied the demands of the law on my behalf. And really, I'm just, as I seek forgiveness for my sins, I'm trusting in that and that alone. Not my contrition, not my works to sort of make up for something. I'm trusting in the finished work of Christ upon the cross, that one-time sacrifice that was effective. And I just ask you, do you believe these things? Do you believe what the scripture teaches about the sacrifice of Christ? And do you value that? As we come to observe the Lord's table today, we're remembering that, we're rejoicing in that. We're making sure that as we examine our lives, we're not living in contradiction to that. And so I want to just encourage us today as we reflect upon our lives, also reflect upon that one-time offering of Christ on our behalf to find forgiveness. And you can have that today. If you don't yet know the Lord as your Savior, if you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you would say, this is foreign to me, I don't, I don't really understand or know, I'd be glad to talk with you today after our service. And I would just encourage you to observe but not participate in the Lord's table. Um, but you can know that your sins are forgiven through this one-time offering of Christ. You put your trust in God. You put your trust in Jesus Christ. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your unfolding plan. Thank you for the shadows that preach the gospel. But we thank you, Lord, that we can see now looking back upon the sacrifice of Christ, how that fulfilled those shadows, how his offering of himself was the perfect one-time sacrifice for our sins. And we pray, even as we observe this table today, that we would do so in a worthy manner. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.